We are excited to have two great guests with us today. We have Holly Pivik and Doug Guyvert. We're going to be talking about the danger of a new apostolic reformation, otherwise known as NAR or the NAR, a movement made popular by organizations such as Bethel in Redding, California. But before we do that, just take a few moments to introduce yourselves. Yeah. So as you said, I'm Holly Pivik and um, I have written uh, with Doug. Um, we've written three books now on the new apostolic reformation movement with actually another one forthcoming next year. Um, so that will be four, but um, I have a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola university in Southern California, where I worked for nearly a decade as the university editor there and the managing editor of Biola magazine. Um, and I have a blog, uh, hollypivic.com where I've been blogging about this movement for um, about 20 years now so for quite a long time yeah thank you Holly and what about you Doug well I'm trained in philosophy and theology and biblical studies I've taught philosophy for the past 30 years and uh, just recently retired I'm emeritus professor of philosophy at Biola University in the Talbot School of Theology um, I joined Holly in this effort a few years into her research and uh, have uh, co-authored with her the several books that she just mentioned. Brilliant. You mentioned uh, you've been looking at this for 20 years. I didn't actually realize it's as as old as that. So before we start, help us define terms, because this actually might be new for some people. What is the New Apostolic Reformation, otherwise known as NAR? So the New Apostolic Reformation is a fast-growing, popular, global movement. It has been around for longer than um, people realize. Um, it's a movement that is, it, 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 the leaders claim that it is as significant as the Protestant Reformation, or even maybe more significant. And the core teaching is that apostles and prophets are being restored to church government that these apostles and prophets are supposed to, uh, they're authoritative, they're supposed to govern the church. And so they can bring their new revelations, which are viewed as critical new revelations in order for the church to bring heaven to earth, to set up God's kingdom. And um, so the history, uh, so really the there was a latter rain movement in the post-World War II era that was promoting these teachings, but it quickly kind of got shut down and went underground because the assemblies of God condemned it. And, but then prophets started resurfacing in churches and in independent charismatic churches in the 1980s and, and apostles started resurfacing in the 1990s. And so these teachings really came back and started gaining more widespread acceptance and so by the year 2001, the Apostle C. Peter Wagner had, had declared that there were enough churches that now accepted these authoritative apostles and prophets that he called 2001 the beginning of the Second Apostolic Age. And, and so um, there are many churches now out there that, that believe that apostles and prophets are supposed to uh, hold the highest offices in church government and pastors and elders and all other Christians are supposed to come under their authority and to to submit to them so they can receive their new revelations that will help all Christians develop miraculous powers like prophesying, learning to um, heal the sick, raise the dead. And, and the thing we want to be really clear about is new apostolic Refor reformation teachings are not historic Pentecostal charismatic teachings about their miraculous gifts. 
Um, they're not just teachings that people, some people today might have a gift of prophecy or speaking in tongues or working miracles, things like that. The teachings in this movement go way beyond that. And they say there are actually apostles and prophets who are um, govern the church and hold these authoritative offices and prophesy authoritatively. And so many Pentecostals and charismatics are actually concerned about this movement because the teachings are so extreme and, and their departure, even from historic Pentecostal charismatic teachings. And one more thing we really like to point out is people in this movement, um, they often uh, do, they won't say they're part of the new apostolic reformation necessarily by that name. In fact, many people, leaders in this movement will actually deny that they're part of the new apostolic reformation. But the core teaching is that there are governing apostles and prophets today. And so if someone holds to that teaching and promotes that teaching, they are part of this movement whether they uh will acknowledge that or not yeah dangerous dangerous stuff so so what are some of the distinctive things that they teach uh one of their distinctive teachings is that miraculous powers can be activated in any christian who desires them and in fact they should be activated every christian is is supposed to be healing the sick raising the dead prophesying and so there are these supernatural schools of ministry that have popped up in churches around the world, uh, many pattern after the one at Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry at Bethel Church in Redding, California, which is the most popular church in this movement today, the most well-known church. And, um, the, and so people go there to these schools to learn to work miracles and to have miraculous powers activated in themselves. So that's very different than Pentecostal charismatic teachings. Yeah. Where, you know, it's believed that some people, the Holy Spirit has given some people the gift for prophesying or, or working miracles. Uh, they would say that every Christian can have all of these gifts and should be operating in these gifts. And they they simply need to have these powers um, activated in themselves. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Holly. How much overlap is there with the prosperity gospel? And how caught up could your average Pentecostal charismatic church be with this stuff? There's well, a lot. Oh, go ahead, Doug. I'm sorry. I'm doing all the talking. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm happy for you to, to do that. Uh, as far as the prosperity gospel is concerned, the the prosperity component is a very real component in the NAR teaching as well. Uh, it, they're not strictly parallel in every respect. I mean, what's often associated with the prosperity gospel uh, is prosperity and uh, blessings, health, um, <clears throat> not necessarily new revelations per se, that, that will vary from group to group. Certainly in NAR, uh, these things are coupled together with that. And uh, also the notion that uh, you come under an apostle's or a prophet's anointing or covering for protection and for blessing. And so you can be activated, as Holly said, in the various miraculous gifts. Uh, you can learn to prophesy and, and even give predictive prophecy. Um, but the, the kind of the prosperity component comes in on top of all of that because they believe that God intends for everyone to be well and, uh, to heal all. And also they do have declaration prayers where they invoke God to use his power in their lives to produce wealth and, and, and health. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to add to that is, um, in the New Apostolic Reformation, they believe that apostles and prophets have been restoring truths that have been lost to the church through the centuries. 
And one of the truths they believe that has been restored is the prosperity gospel teaching. And so they incorporate the prosperity gospel under the NAR into the NAR theological framework. And the reason they believe prosperity is so important is they believe there have been revelations given by prophets that there is going to be this billion soul harvest where a billion souls under, you know, under the leadership of apostles and prophets will, will come into God's kingdom and uh, through all the miracles and signs and wonders that are being performed. But they, they, there's been another prophecy that there will be a great end time transfer of wealth from the wicked to the righteous. And so this wealth will really be transferred into the hands of those who follow the apostles and prophets so that they have the wealth needed to set up God's kingdom on earth. And so the prosperity gospel has a kind of a NAR spin on it. It's, it's prosperity for the purpose of building God's kingdom, but all followers also can partake of that prosperity in their own lives. Yeah. Yeah. How are these teachings making their way into everyday churches without them even realizing? Well, one way this happens is through their music. That's probably the most uh, popular means of disseminating their theology and their practices is through the Bethel music label. There are other uh, musical groups that are also influenced by NAR, but Bethel is especially noteworthy because their music is so popular. It's been award-winning. Of course, many people have uh, participated in corporate worship using their songs, even in churches that don't teach any of the things that we're talking about here. Uh, the teaching does come through, and one thing we say in our book is that uh, music today in the evangelical church in particular is like the catechism of the church. It is the way that people are receiving their theological instruction. That doesn't mean that it's deep and penetrating and uh, biblical. It just means that that's where they're getting their ideas, and they're getting I these same ideas reinforced uh, week in and week out through their participation in corporate worship. And in many cases, they simply don't know that uh, the lyrics of their songs embed various teachings that are part of NAR because they use language a certain way. Uh, they mean different things by the terms that terms that are very familiar to the to the church. Otherwise, uh, they speak euphemistically. But there's a very dominant thread of uh, NAR teaching in their music, and many people will tell us that their primary entree into the NAR movement was through the music. Uh, they enjoyed the music. They felt close to God because of the music. And uh, the production quality is very good. It's very high. And people are drawn to that. And then they may go to a concert, uh, a Bethel music concert, or visit Bethel Church and enroll in the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministries, all because they were initially introduced through their own church, which is not NAR, uh, by the music. And one of the ironies of this is I think it's 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 sort of spiritually suicidal for churches to do this because in the movement, there is a definite uh, impression that a church that is alive and moving with the Spirit of God is one where the miraculous is happening on a regular basis, where you have the covering and protection of apostles and prophets. And if your church does not is not organized in this way and is not teaching these things, you're missing out on the blessing, and and your church is, by comparison, a dead and dying church, and you should become part of a more vibrant church. And so churches that they would compare themselves with in this way are actually purchasing their music and using it in their services, and in that respect, kind of undermining their own efforts to disciple their people who will be drawn away from this uh, apparently or comparatively uh, 
lifeless uh, church life and into NAR. And in addition to the music, you have Sozo, um, the Sozo um, rooms that are popping up in churches throughout the world. Sozo was a practice popularized by Bethel Redding, where people go to seek emotional and spiritual healing. Um, and um, but it involves, you know, prophets that are telling supposedly revealing to people what the root issues are behind their problems. And there's a lot of problems with Sozo we talk about in our book, uh, Healing Rooms have popped up in communities throughout the world uh, under uh, the apostle Cal Pierce, who actually uh, came out of Bethel church in Reading and where people go to seek physical uh, healing. Um, and, but this isn't just rooms where you go and people pray and ask God to, you know, to heal you. It's, it's prayer declarations are being made uh, that God will heal people and, and other NAR practices are being promoted in these healing rooms. Um Treasure hunting evangelism is another practice that's been popularized in churches. The idea that uh, teams of like four or five people will go out into a community, maybe to a shopping mall or a grocery store or a park, and they'll they'll they believe God gives them clues. Um, uh, they'll write on a treasure map, like prophetically reveals to them clues about people they will encounter in those settings. So for example, maybe they feel like God has told them that, that that person will be wearing a white shirt and they'll have a tattoo on their arm and they'll have a black hat on. And, and then they'll go to someone they think matches that description and say, you know, God led us to you. He gave us his prophetic word for you, or he wants to heal you if, if they have a physical condition. And so that's a, that's a NAR form of evangelism that has has really been popularized too yes and they're quite intentional about using music to disseminate their views and to influence theology the the way people think and and practice their christian uh, life Uh, bill johnson who is the pastor the senior pastor at bethel church in reading and an apostle for the movement uh has said this is a quotation from his writings music bypasses all of the intellectual barriers. Now, some people would hear that and they'd say, oh, then that's a that's a reason to be careful. No, he is advocating for this. He goes on to say, and when the anointing of God is on a song, people will, be, uh, will begin to believe things they wouldn't believe through teaching. And so this is an intentional effort to package a theology that might not be palatable if it was stra- if it was just taught straight up, and it would be difficult to ground in scripture. So you import it through the music and bypass the intellectual barriers, as he calls them, which are really our critical faculties for evaluating truth claims uh, using evidence. That's the way it should be. But this is an intentional effort to go to the emotions and bypass our critical faculties, which um, they think could actually be a hindrance to your spiritual life. Yeah. And it's a big business as well, right? Because churches are actually funding these organizations through the licensing agreement with CCLA. This is worth a lot of money, isn't it? It is. And it's and it's not just the, the churches, the churches pay to use the songs um, and services. In addition, it's developing an appetite for the music. And so people go to the concerts, they they buy the albums or, you know, online. Um, so the, the money is really being used to fuel and fund the new apostolic reformation yeah yeah in case anyone listening to this is thinking that this is all some sort of 
small, weird, cult-like niche. This whole thing is huge, isn't it? Bethel Music have 1.8 million Instagram followers, and they have more than 3.5 million people in America alone going to NAR churches. Yeah, the the social media of uh, all the prophets, the apostles, um, have millions of followers, as you pointed out. Um, best-selling books by Bill Johnson, by Chris Valentin, by the other leaders and apostles and prophets in this movement. Um, this movement is huge, and many people don't realize that um, virtually every city and town has churches that follow these apostles and prophets. Um, there are in the United States alone, there are 3.5 million people who attend churches that are part of apostolic networks. And so they're directly governed by apostles in that way. In addition, though, there's millions more who attend churches, Pentecostal churches, charismatic churches, where these teachings have come in in varying degrees, um, where apostles and prophets are often invited in to speak, where their books are used um, for Bible studies or Sunday school classes. Um you know, where um, where the teachings are followed and promoted, even if yeah. they aren't part of an apostolic network. Yeah. yeah, and it's a global movement, to be sure. Every country I visited um, has been a place where I've encountered this, and I've seen that it is popular, it's influential, and it is oftentimes specific to Bethel Church. They have an amazing reach with uh, their ministry, through their music, of course, through their social media that reaches out globally. You don't have to leave town to have a global reach, but many of them do. And Bill Johnson is known to uh, travel internationally and speak at various conferences, whether that be uh, various places around Europe or South Africa or Australia or what have you. And uh, I encounter this quite a bit in my own international travel. The lack of discernment that you mentioned in this world is another huge problem, isn't it? Bill Johnson, as an example, from Bethel, he'd happily share a platform and he endorses people like Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn. And in our generation, if we're honest, it doesn't really get any worse than that, does it? Well, the thing is, it, it's um, it's not surprising to me because there's so much overlap between the... I, I already said how the prosperity gospel teachings are a restored truth, well, word of faith teachings, which are promoted by Kenneth Copeland, for example, um, word of faith teachings are viewed as a truth that was lost to the church and has been restored through contemporary apostles and prophets. And that's where prayer declarations come in. The idea that we can we can make declarations or speak words that actually create reality for healing and prosperity and things like that. Those are word of faith teachings. And so there's a lot of overlap uh, between teachers like Kenneth Copeland and, and Bill Johnson. Some of those other organizations that we just touched on with huge problems and yet still attract uh, people by their music and by being cool with people like Hillsong, um, Elevation Church with Stephen Furtick. What involvement, if any, do these have um, with the NAR? Well, Elevation is not, um, Elevation is part of the Southern Baptist denomination. So it is it is not an our church. It's Southern Baptist. But the thing is that Stephen Furtick, uh, he's he's spoken. He spoke at a Bethel Music Conference in 2019 in Los Angeles, the Heaven Come Conference with Bill Johnson and Chris Bellaton. And Elevation artists collaborate with Bethel Music musicians in their music. And you can see our buzzwords and our concepts in, in many Elevation songs. And so there are these groups like Bethel Music or Jesus Culture, which which are produced by overtly in our churches. 
but or forerunner music at the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, Missouri. These are overtly in our churches with with music labels that are popular. In addition, though, there's other music labels out there that that where you can see the NAR concepts and, and buzzwords uh, showing up in the music. And there's a lot of collaboration among artists, even with Bethlehem music artists. Yeah. And what about Hillsong? We, we mentioned about the UK. Hillsong would be more well known um, in terms of actual geographical location here than Bethel. What 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 are they into? Uh, heavy, heavy NAR influence. If not overtly NAR, there's, there's real heavy NAR influence. There's a book, um, I think it's called The Apostolic Revolution. It's about the history of the Assemblies of God in Australia, and it documents uh, the the NAR influence on Hillsong. But um, uh, the leaders of Bethel, uh, I, I'm sorry, of Hillsong, um, they actually have been referred to as apostles by other leaders within the church. So um, Brian Houston and Bobby Houston have been referred to as apostles with, by leaders within their own church and also by leaders outside the church. So they, they are regarded as such. In our book, uh, Counterfeit Kingdom, the new book, uh, we have a chapter that just discusses the music itself. And it focuses uh, especially on Bethel music and some of the lyrics. And people can go to that chapter to see examples of songs where we see evidence of overt NAR teaching. Um, it, it's, a it, it's a chapter that comes later in the book because there's so much else you want to know about the movement and what to look for. You want to understand the concept of prayer declarations, for example, so that you know how they show up in the music um, and how it is that, in effect, when you're singing their songs, you're participating in the practice of prayer declarations. And this is intentional on their part. So uh, we have a number of uh, specific examples and details of this. We make reference to several other groups like Elevation, uh, Hillsong, and yeah. the Jesus Culture. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to make sure that we've got a link to your new book, Counterfeit Kingdom, in the description below, wherever you're listening to this or watching this interview. Bethel have a school called the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, don't they? What sort of things are they teaching people there? Well, the reason people go to Bethel School Supernatural Ministry is is basically to learn 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 to work miracles. And this Bethel's own students will refer to the school fondly as the Christian Hogwarts, you know, like Hogwarts in the Harry Potter books and films. Um, and so so they go there to uh, become activated in miraculous gifts. And the type of exercises that have been promoted by the school or, or just Bethel in general. So this is an example of a prophetic activation exercise. What they'll do is they'll take two students and have them stand back to back. And, um, and they won't know who, who the other student is, but they'll blindfold them. And then say the first thing that comes to mind is a prophetic word for the person standing behind them. And um, so that's, that's the type of prophetic activation exercise that has been promoted um, by the school. And, um, and I actually witnessed something like that when I visited Bethel church and I went to their adult Sunday school class or fire starters class, they were teaching people how to prophesy that day, um, or activating people in the prophetic. And so they called four volunteers to come to the front of the room. These were people who had never prophesied before, but they wanted to learn how, and they would have the volunteers come to the front of the room one at a time, pick somebody in the room they didn't know. And just say whatever they were told to say, whatever popped into their head without filtering it as a prophetic word 
for the person in the audience and not to worry if they made mistakes, they were just learning, it was okay. And so, so this is, these prophetic activation exercises will generally involve encouraging people to say whatever pops into their head as a prophetic word for someone else and just to keep practicing and, and that's how they do it. Yeah, and it's noteworthy not only that there are parallels between um, the way that they train students to prophesy and and perform miracles uh, resembles there are parallels between their practices and um, you know new age practices as we describe in the book, but uh, they're not taught in scripture. These these practices, these learning exercises, they're all um, b- borrowed either from the entertainment industry or from uh, the, the new age movement, but you don't see them taught in scripture. You don't see, um, even the, the notion of activation in the miraculous taught in scripture. And so this is a very distinctive thing is to at, you should always ask the question, what is the biblical source for the teaching and for the practice that, uh, we're seeing manifest here? And if there isn't one, then you have to ask, well, what authority does it have? How do we know that it's legitimate? How do we know that it's from God? And um, and then if we find that these, these uh, so-called prophets are not only uh, giving revelations of a new sort, but also uh, pur- purporting that they have received special insight into the teaching of scripture where they know things that other people don't, not because of the way they've studied scripture using uh, responsible Bible study practices, but because the spirit of God blows on the text and on the words while they are reading them and they receive special revelatory illumination into the meaning of the text. And it's oftentimes far removed from what the text actually teaches. And so my view is that if a so-called prophet is uh, playing fast and loose with his interpretation of scripture and he gets that wrong and his teachings from scripture are false, then we shouldn't be trusting him to be a prophetic uh, speaker on God's behalf when he has new revelations to share with the world. Yeah. You mentioned the the big overlap with the new age practices and even things like NLP. And actually, if you listen to them pro- prophesy from the stage, they sound more like a clairvoyant, don't they? Guessing the person's door number and what they do for a living before telling them that they're about to come into some money or have a great life changing opportunity. How does this stuff have anything to do with a prophecy that we have in that we see in scripture? Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, that's that's what I observed when I went to that adult Sunday school class at Bethel. Um, you know, and these four volunteers came to the front of the room. One of the volunteers, we share the story in the book, but one of the volunteers said something like, you know, I, I, I'm getting a name and a birthday, you know, and, and just called out a, a, or a name and a date. And they said, does this name and mean anything to anyone? Does this date mean anything to anyone? And it, it sounded like a, you know, a, it was like cold reading or, you know, like, like what you would see on a John Edwards television special or something like that. Um, and, and there is no basis for this, this, these practices in scripture. It looks nothing like the prophecy you would see in the Bible. Yeah. Tell us about the kenosis theory and how they apply this. Okay. So the doctrine of kenosis derives from a passage of scripture in the new Testament in uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter two, verse seven, where it says that Jesus emptied himself and uh, became a man. And he is given as an example of humility 
uh, for the church in that passage. Now, there are different views of what this means, uh, that Jesus emptied himself. But uh, the kenosis doctrine is named that because of the Greek word for kenosis or self-emptying you know, that's used in the passage. And uh, some have taught over generations of time um, doctrines that uh, are actually heretical versions of kenosis. That is that Jesus is not even God at all, that he is strictly human and, uh, and not divine. <clears throat> and so he emptied himself of his divinity. Now, this is not uh, the characteristic teaching of NAR leaders. Bill Johnson has been accused of this because of some slips in his language and in his writings that he hasn't really corrected uh, adequately, we think. And so it's invited um, suspicion that he accepts a heretical form of the doctrine of kenosis. But what, <clears throat> what he does say is that he believes fully in the full divinity and full humanity of Jesus Christ. And we take his word for it uh, when he says that. We don't uh, question his integrity when he claims to believe the classical doctrine of the two natures of Christ. But here's the thing. <clears throat> Johnson believes that Jesus did empty himself of the use of his divine power while he was alive on the earth. And so while even he even though he will affirm the full deity of Jesus as well as his humanity he will say that all of the miracles he performed were performed as a man in utter dependence on the holy spirit and not at all using his own divine power and uh, this is important to his general teaching about the possibility that we too can experience um, that we too can depend on the holy spirit and practice uh, the same uh, practices that Jesus did, miraculously speaking. When Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, as recorded in John chapter 14, in verse 12, we're told that he said to them that the works that I have done, you will do also, and greater works than these will you do. And Johnson just uh, directly teaches that these works that Jesus is referring to are miracles, and we will have the same capacity as Jesus himself to work all the miracles that he did and even greater miracles than his own. Now, there's a lot to say about this passage, and I don't believe that Jesus is talking exclusively here about his miracles at all, but that is Bill Johnson's direct teaching, and he says it cannot possibly mean anything else. That's simply mistaken. But the point is that he believes that all of Jesus' miracles were performed in uh, dependence on the Holy Spirit, an external divine source of power, and not his own divine source of power. Now, we believe this is just clearly false because there are at least in some cases miracles that Jesus performs in demonstration of his authority to exercise divine prerogatives. So, for example, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals the paralytic, but he doesn't do this until after he has first said to the man, your sins are forgiven. And this is scandalous in, in, in the room. Uh, there are reverberations all through the room of people wondering how could Jesus presume to forgive sins since only God can do that. And he says, referring to himself, so that you will know that the Son of Man, myself, has power on earth to forgive sins. He turns then to the man who is crippled, and he says, rise, take up your pallet, and go home. And the man stands up and walks out, fully healed of his paralysis. 
This is in demonstration of his divine authority to forgive sins. It could not be clearer that in this case and others, Jesus is exercising his own divine power. And that is something that we could never do uh, as Jesus did. So this is a mistake on his part to teach that his self-emptying meant that he never acted miraculously using his own divine power. Yeah, yeah. really helpful, Doug. Thank you. I don't think we've mentioned the name Sean Bowles yet. Um, in your book, mm. you, you give an example of when he uh, channeled a dead person from the platform during a conference. Mm. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that was a Bethel Leadership Conference um, at Bethel Church. And um, Bill Johnson was sitting in the audience. And and Sean Bowles uh, really claimed that he was channeling. I mean, he didn't use the word channeling, but uh, that he was receiving... Uh, communication from a deceased prophet who's very well known and revered in NAR named Bob Jones. And he claimed that, that he was, he was seeing Bob Jones um, like interact with Bill Johnson's deceased father and his deceased family members. And that Bill Johnson or that Bob Jones was giving Johnson a message. Uh, it was something like your next installment is coming was the message. And that was interpreted by bolts to mean that financial resources would be being released to Bill Johnson. Um, and, and that, and that's not the only example of really it's, this is, looks a lot like necromancy. It's communication with the dead. And that's not the only example of necromancy being promoted by leaders in arts. Actually, uh, it's becoming a more popular teaching and we share other examples of that in the book as well but sean bolts has said he, he, that believers should expect to receive more such communications with deceased uh loved ones in the days of ahead so he's actually teaching people to look for to expect to engage in these in, in necromancy yeah so bad one of the frustrating things i found particularly with bethel is that when they get caught doing something really weird that when it becomes public they distance themselves and seem to sweep it under the carpet and we've seen this with things like grave sucking uh, the false manufactured prophecy and with the christian tarot cards tell us about these things in particular and why it can almost feel like we're uh, seeing a game of whack-a-mole sometimes i will say about uh, for example about grave soaking um when it came to light that that bethel students were taking part in that practice the bethel leaders said you know, we've never promoted this. Uh, basically, they they said it was some overly enthusiastic students. They were they did this on their own. It was never promoted by the leaders of the church. But evidence, the evidence shows to the contrary of that. I mean, uh, Bill Johnson's own late wife, wife Benny. There are pictures of her uh, that can be easily found on online by googling them. You know, of her uh, embracing tombstones and, and taking part in this practice and um another uh a former uh bethel pastor and a bssm graduate uh from their bethel school supernatural ministry ben fitzgerald uh there's video of him taking part in promoting this practice and and uh former students say that, that they were this was promoted by bethel leaders and this is all documented in our book but um it, it is um it it sure looks like um a cover-up you know when when they say that they never promoted it but then all this evidence is to the contrary yeah yeah because bethel is so well known because of the music that we've mentioned there was a a lot of interest in the wake up olive campaign it made its way onto primetime 
TV um, over in the States, didn't it? Tell us about this and the problems that this causes um, to the public face of Christianity. Well, Olive was the uh, young daughter of a minister of music uh, or a person uh, on the ministry staff at the church uh, in, in their worship um, ministry. And uh, she died unexpectedly in their home. And the parents came forward and said that they wanted to uh, declare that Olive would be raised from the dead. And so they began to issue or utter prayer declarations to that effect. Now, this is a form of prayer according to the New Apostolic Reformation, to Bethel teaching. It is not petitionary prayer, and it should not be confused with that. They are quite explicit in distinguishing between prayers of declaration, which are prayers of, of profound faith and confidence that God is going to do something. So they have a prophetic quality, and an expectation is built in that what they declare is um, about to happen. And so, but they call it prayer. And uh, they also believe that this kind of faith is required in order to see God bless in the maximal way, such as he might in bringing some uh, a, a deceased person back to life. Uh, they also uh, encourage other people to participate in this practice with them. So when they issue a prayer declaration, it is more effectual and more powerful if there are more people involved globally. And this is how social media plays a role in, <clears throat> in moving the hand of God, you could say. Uh, and certainly coming under the covering of an apostle and prophet is helpful as well. So if you can get the church leadership and the apostles and prophets to participate in prayer declarations, that's all the better. And so this is something they did. Uh, for several days while they waited for Olive to come back to life, expecting that she would be raised from the dead. This is something they were declaring, not asking for, not praying for in a petitionary fashion, but saying the, this will happen. And uh, they were calling on Olive to wake up. Well, after several days of this, and uh, she did not wake up, they finally acknowledged that uh, they would be planning a memorial service for Little Olive. And what's very interesting to me, I mean, there are a number of things about this that are interesting, but uh, rather than acknowledge that they had erred, that they had uh, made declarations that were not true and that did not have any power after all, uh, they redescribed in a press release what it was that they had been doing. And the way they described their actions was as if they had been engaged in petitionary prayer, waiting on God to see what in his sovereignty he was willing to do. Yeah. And that simply is not the way that they conducted themselves leading up to the decision that, of, uh, in fact, Olive would not be coming back to life. And so this is a concern to me. It isn't just a concern that they are issuing prayer declarations, that they call this practice prayer, which is foreign to Scripture, and it is not a, a form of prayer at all. And uh, and then uh, to change their story and to redescribe it so that it sounds like something more petitionary, which in general is not really that popular with them. A petitionary prayer um, is often described as a prayer that shows a kind of lack of faith, that what you do is you, you it's a sort of a cop-out, that when you pray and you ask God for things, you submit them to the outworking of his sovereign will, and you say that you will accept whatever his answer is in faith, believing that he can do um, amazing things if he wills to. 
Uh, this can jinx your prayers if you uh, seem to lack the faith that God will actually do what you declare. And so their teaching isn't even very consistent, but it's also uh, striking that when something is declared and does not come about, it is redescribed as petition. You mentioned a little bit earlier on about the role of healing uh, in, in, in the NAR. Um, if they genuinely believe that they themselves could go around healing people, why, why did we not see them going into hospitals uh, during lockdown? Hmm. A lot of people have asked the question about, you know, why, why they don't um, go into hospitals and clear them out. The, the thing is, the teaching is in NAR is Bill Johnson's teaching is that it is always God's will to heal every sick person, no exceptions. And um, that teaching has caused un incalculable, you know, heartache in, in the lives of people. We share some of those stories in our book. I mean, because people, when people are taught that, then the implication is if I'm not healed, then I'm doing something wrong. And, um, and Bill Johnson has made a number of statements that, that sure sound to that effect. And, and we cite those in our book that, you know, that the idea is that, that if uh, someone is not healed, um, for example, um, you know, Bill Johnson's own wife, Benny, sadly, recently passed away of cancer and his own father passed away of cancer, sadly. And um, but when that happens and people will say, well, why weren't they healed? You were making declarations. And, and the answer is, well, it's, it's mysterious. You know, we don't know why. But I don't, Bill Johnson will say, I don't want to adjust my theology to my level of experience. He would say it's clear from scripture that it's always God's will to heal, no exceptions. And so when that doesn't happen, you know, we need to press in more and, 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 you know, the implication is maybe we need more revelation. Uh, maybe, you know, we need, we need to figure this out because, it, you know, there's more we need to learn and so the fall is by implication is, is placed on the people that there's something they need to learn. There's something else they need to know, um, you know, in order for it to happen next time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's gospel. anything but clear in scripture. In fact, on the contrary, it's clear from scripture that God does not always heal in response to our petitionary prayers. Uh, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, uh, noted in his prayer to the Father, you can do all things. You have all power at your disposal. And he asked if it be possible for the cup of his suffering that was about to come uh, might pass so that he did not have to experience that. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. And we know what God's will was in that matter. And Jesus' will was perfectly conformed to the will of the Father, even though he dreaded the suffering that was coming his way. Uh, Paul uh, descri describes this thorn in the flesh, which is a metaphor for some uh, illness probably that he had and was never relieved of that. Uh, it served a spiritual purpose in his life, and he accepted that, but he prayed multiple times for God to remove it, and God did not. He did the same for Timothy and others. So we know that whereas it's true that God has healed and he has uh, responded to the prayers of his people in healing others and done so miraculously, uh, he does not always do so. And this is actually taught clearly in Scripture. So it is not the clear teaching of Scripture that God intends to heal everyone and that it's somehow the failure of faith that can explain why it is that an, a person is uh, continues to suffer uh, physical illness.
What is the gospel according to the New Apostolic Reformation? Well, uh, they refer to the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom. And what they would say is that the gospel includes uh, what, what we would say the gospel, that, that Christ's work on the cross made the way for forgiveness of sin, for reconciliation with God, for eternal life. But they would go beyond that and say the full gospel includes the full gospel of the kingdom would include the idea that the, the um, Jesus has made the way for the church to take dominion or, or sociopolitical control really of the earth. And, and that that's done through the performance of miraculous signs and wonders. So dominion signs and wonders, these become integral parts of the gospel. There's often a pushback, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this when someone calls out false teaching. And often people can accuse that person of being divisive. But why is this actually unbiblical? And actually, as Christians, we are to raise the alarm about these things. Well, <laughs> unity ought to be accomplished on the basis of a shared conviction about the things that are true. That is the proper basis for unity. Jesus uh, said in his high priestly prayer, as it's often called, uh, recorded in John chapter 17, he said, Father, sanctify these, my disciples, uh, in the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. Uh, we are not word of faith people. We are word of truth people. We think that uh, unity depends upon shared conviction about the revealed truths of God in Scripture. And so calling out false teaching and calling out um, irresponsible practices is actually good for the church. It's It fosters health in the church by pruning away what is uh, misleading uh, what is false and what uh, causes uh, division actually in the church. And so it's very convenient to be able to say, well, listen, uh, you shouldn't be so harsh and so critical of our practices. And, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And so why would you want to uh, harm the unity of the church? Well, we're asking them to teach the truth and uh, to repent of uh, their mishandling of scripture. And uh, that's just the appropriate thing to do, of course, if we want to see the unity of the faith. And then notice that uh, they are responsible for so much disunity uh, themselves, uh, chiefly because they are contradicting the teachings of scripture in the things that they teach about health and wealth and the gospel of the kingdom and about activation and ongoing revelation and how you can have uh, prophets make mistakes and they're still legitimate prophets of God. And we think that this is divisive. We think that this is causing confusion in the church. And uh, families are divided. Churches are divided. And it's because there simply is not a commitment to a faithful uh, interpretation of Scripture in accord with well-established practices uh, that have served the church for centuries. Uh, how is it that uh, you can call other churches dead, right, and lifeless because they don't practice prayer declarations, because they don't see the miraculous happening on a routine basis, because they don't welcome uh, 
uh, extra biblical revelation from uh, false prophets. Uh, how is it that they can say these churches are dead? These churches are lifeless. You need to come under the covering and blessing of an apostle or a prophet. How is that not divisive itself? Yeah. yeah and, and furthermore, if to claim that you're bringing about a reformation as significant or even more significant than the Protestant reformation um, and that that the teachings that you're bringing will change the expression of Christianity in a single generation. I mean, to make these claims and then to turn around and accuse the people who point these claims out as being divisive, as being divisive, is, is um, you know, very uh, inconsistent. <laughs> well, I have a double standard. You apply the standard to your opponents, yeah. but not to yourselves. Now, another thing that happens here, David, is that some people will say, you know, we're not part of the new apostolic reformation. We are apostolic. We have an apostolic ministry. We affirm the fivefold ministry of Ephesians 4.11, as they describe it. And uh, and so these uh, we're concerned that your criticisms of NAR are going to reflect negatively on us, that uh, people are going to think you're talking about us. Well, our point is that maybe we should be very careful about claiming to be apostolic and we should explain exactly what we mean when we purport to have an apostolic ministry. What is the nature of that authority? On what basis does anyone, should anyone believe that you are apostolic in your ministry and in your outreach? And uh, maybe uh, it is time for Christians to be much more cautious in the way they use language and organize their churches around the ministry of uh, and the leadership of pastors and elders. Yeah. Whereas you guys have been sounding the alarm, you have people, well-known people like Francis Chan, who in his latest book wrote exactly on this subject and actually was encouraging the sheep in with the wolves and many of the people that we've just been speaking about and to all get along nicely. Where do Christians have to draw the line when it comes to unity? And why is it that truth at any cost is over unity at any cost? Yeah, I was, I was just looking at Francis Chan's book uh, last night, Until Unity, it's called. And I haven't read it yet, um, but I I plan to. And I I am I have seen videos he has done with NAR leaders like Bill Johnson, where he has apologized to them for saying that he had viewed them maybe as false teachers. And um, and so he has part of his unity that he's calling for in this book includes unity with these NAR leaders. Um and the thing is, you know, what, what we're trying to show is the errors in NAR, you know, we're not calling them heresy. We're not saying they write, you know, they would put you outside the Christian faith, but we, they're not just minor, non-important errors either. The the teachings in NAR are aberrant. They're serious doctrinal error that is causing people to shipwreck their faith. It's, it's splitting families. It's splitting churches. It's causing people to have severe disillusionment with their faith and even abandon it. So. Uh, uh, so um, the thing about his book is it's called Until Unity. But if you read, it's from Ephesians 4. Uh, he gets that from Ephesians 4, um, 13. And, and I wanted to read just those the, the context of that because he leaves out something important. You know, the title does not reflect the full context here. It's And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God 
to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint. And it goes on, which, it, you know, it's equipped. But my point is that the unity uh, that the title of his book until unity comes from that passage. But if you read that in context, it's a unity of the faith. It's first and foremost, a doctrinal unity. And it's supposed to keep us from being carried around by every wave and wind of doctrine, like the ones we're talking about in the new apostolic reformation movement. And so, um, uh, I think it's important too, to realize that, you know, we, we are, we talk about this verse from in 16, 17 in our book, where Paul appeals to the Roman Christians, he says, I appeal to your brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them, you know, and when it's, it's, it's the uh, NAR leaders who are putting these, bringing forth these doctrines that are putting these obstacles in people's way, contrary to what we have been taught, what the apostles have taught us. And um, so they're actually the ones causing division you know, not us. So that that's um, important to realize. Yeah. If anyone listening right now has been influenced by these people, what would you suggest to them as good next steps? One thing I would say is uh, they should get educated about the new apostolic reformation movement and, and, and what it is. Um, uh, they could read our book, other books, listen to podcasts uh, such as yours. Um, and people, they, people who've been influenced by these teachings really need to take the teachings that they've been taught by the apostles and prophets and compare them with scripture, see how they line up and in scripture in context properly interpreted. Um, because a lot of times leaders in this movement will take a verse such as Ephesians 4.11, which says God gave, you know, Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, take it out of its context and build an entire theology, an entire movement they will build on that verse. But when you read it in context, it teaches, it does not teach that there are five hierarchical governing offices that Christ has given to, to lead the church through all generations. It doesn't teach that, but that will be, so people need to look at the teachings, read them in context, make sure they're being properly interpreted and, and see if they're actually teaching what the NARA leaders say they're teaching. Our time together has absolutely flown by the last hour. Before I let you both go, do you have any closing thoughts? Well, I would say uh, what I like to stress is the great need to discern using the uh, scriptures themselves as your touchstone for truth. And uh, really, if you are obedient to the commands of Christ, to the teachings of scripture, and uh, you seek to be faithful there, and you are looking for the, the, the moral miracles that the Holy Spirit produces through the production of the fruit of the Spirit, as described in Galatians 5, um, then you are a workman approved by God who is handling the word responsibly and seeking to implement the teachings of the Lord in your life. Uh, you can't go wrong if you do that. You don't need extra revelation from prophets who give spurious teachings and get things wrong. And so um, I would encourage people to uh, ask the question, 
just exactly what should we look for in a work of God and be careful not to evaluate the life of your own church and your own uh, Christian experience strictly in terms of subjective feelings that you have about whether the spirit is uh, working miraculously around you or uh, uh, activating others in the miraculous or producing new revelations that will give you new insight into the scriptures or uh, God's plan for the ages. <clears throat> but just the simple, faithful uh, growth in knowledge of the word of God, in prayer of petition, in dependence on his spirit, submitting your will to his, but believing that he can do great things to be sure. Uh, this is my encouragement to the church today, and not to use uh, human criteria for evaluating a work of God. Jesus warned in uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, he said that there will be false price, a Christ and false prophets coming at the end of the age. And uh, he says in chapter seven of the same book, Matthew, that uh, some will come and say that I perform signs and wonders in your name. And he will say, yes, but I never knew you. Depart from me. Uh, Jesus himself promised uh, and predicted that we should expect that there would be false teachers and false prophets that might even go so far as to uh, confuse and deceive the elect believers themselves, he says in Matthew 24, 24. So we, we cannot be too careful. We cannot be too determined in our efforts to discern using the word of God uh, what is a true prophecy, a true revelation from God, and what is not. Yeah, and I would just add that um, if we didn't address a particular passage of scripture during this podcast or a, a certain topic, really encourage people to go look in our book, Counterfeit Kingdom, or even our older books, um, A New Apostolic Reformation or, or uh, God's Super Apostles, um, because uh, we, we have addressed many passages of scripture in those books, many other arguments and issues that, that we weren't able to address today. Many yeah, people have been rescued from this movement and been spared great pain and experienced mm -hmm. real healing emotionally and spiritually because they have gone to the scriptures and humbly sought uh, the truth before God and examined these things to see if they be true. Just like the Berean church, which is commended uh, by Paul. Well, we're going to make sure that we've got links to all of your books in the description below. Also uh, to your blog, Holly, um, and your Twitter account. Doug, are you on Twitter or are you on social media anywhere? I I do have a Facebook account, a Twitter account, sure. And uh, I also have a blog that's not particularly current right now, uh, but I'm in transition there. Yeah, I'm very active on Facebook. I'm very active on Facebook, too. I'm on Twitter, but I'm probably more active on Facebook. And Instagram. Okay, excellent. Right, brilliant. Yeah. Well, I'll find all of those links and I'll make sure they're in the description below. So make sure that you go and follow both Doug and Holly. Thank you so much for your time, guys. I've really enjoyed it. Well, thank, thank you, you David. David. Yeah. Thank you.